Welcome back to the Ask Different Podcast, an unofficial podcast created by members of the Ask Different community about Apple and related technologies. This is episode number five, recorded May 28, 2011. I'm Kyle Cronin, and joining with me today is Jason Salas. What's going on, Jason? Afternoon, Kyle, and it is officially afternoon for me by just six minutes. Yeah, we, uh, we're actually recording these in multiple time zones, so you're... Uh, it's about uh, noon in Colorado. It's about two p.m. here, and uh, it's about, I think, eleven, where uh, Nathan Greenstein is recording. Uh, Nathan, you wanted to say something? Hi, Kyle. Still morning. Yes. Eleven right. six. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we did want to uh, update you uh, with some errata on our previous episode. Uh, this is something that Jason has had on his chest for the past <laughs> two weeks since we last recorded, and he just wants to come clean and he wants to uh, correct something. So, Jason? Yeah, uh, not once, but twice while we were discussing the XY problem regarding our question of the week, I said that the quickest way to lock your computer is to sleep your display and set your security settings so that the computer locks immediately. Uh, not once, but twice, I said, control, shift, escape, and walk away. Well, that doesn't do anything, at least not by default. Instead, control, shift, eject will immediately sleep your displays, any displays connected to your computer. So yeah, control, shift, eject, not control, shift, escape. Mm-hmm. It's a good distinction to make. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, moving on to some uh, site news, uh, Stack Exchange is now a, an OpenID provider. Back when uh, Stack Overflow first started in the summer of 2008, they made a rather uh, daring decision to not actually manage any login credentials whatsoever and to require that every member, if they wanted to actually log back into their account, to associate an open ID with that account. And this was actually back before uh, things like Facebook and Google offered open ID logins. So it was really kind of a decision that was ahead of its time. And of course, in the past few years, we, we've seen the proliferation of m- many uh, different services, Yahoo, AOL, Facebook, Google, that offer their own open ID endpoints so that people can use their their accounts on those services to log into sites like Stack Overflow and any other services uh, that will accept an open ID login. Well, now Stack Exchange itself is an open ID provider, so if you don't need to use an open ID for anything else and you don't have a Google account, an AOL account, a Facebook account, uh, then you've been living under a rock for a couple of years, but yes, that's neither that. here nor there. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of surprising, but or, or maybe if you don't, if you just don't want to associate it with with the Stack Overflow for whatever reason, then you do also have the option of creating an OpenID account on Stack Exchange itself. And so, in order to do this, uh, if you have an existing account uh, that already has an OpenID, you just go into your user profile, then you hit. Uh, add OpenID. Uh, this is assuming you don't already have two OpenIDs. Uh, if you do, obviously you want to delete one before you you can add another one. So you just hit Add OpenID. Then you'll see uh, a bar that says, uh, you know, it has Google, Facebook, all that stuff. But the leftmost one is now Stack Exchange. If you hit that, and then you hit Create a New Account, you can create uh, an OpenID account on the Stack Exchange service. 
And this is not just a specialized account that can only be used on the Stack Exchange sites, but you can also use this on any site that you could take an open ID on. So it it really sort of you know for for people that don't necessarily know what open id is and, and you know with a lot of stack exchange sites that aren't necessarily technology related uh you're going to get a lot more of those kind of people you know they they don't have to go and register for one of these third party services in order to simply log into the website so that's that is a good thing right now although i have to say back when it was sort of being beta tested on on metastack overflow I did sort of post a minor complaint about the password requirements. I know on our first show we talked all about security and having strong passwords, but I think that having a strong password or rather the strength of your password is something that should be more or less left to the user. And and having these extensive requirements for uh, having a password on a service just makes it more likely that the person's going to come up going to have to put in something that they are less likely to remember and might even write down and 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 decrease their security in that way just to give you an example of of stack exchange's uh, requirements for their passwords they have to be at least 8 characters and you have to have at least 3 of a lowercase letter an uppercase letter uh, a number and a special character so for example i don't like using the shift key when uh, when i'm typing in my my passwords so I typically go with uh, lowercase letters and numbers. Of course, I make sure it's sufficiently long, but uh, even my Google account password does not meet these requirements. And I think that that's probably going to be the case for a lot of people. They're going to have to um, you know, come up with a complicated password and then somehow figure out how they're going to remember it. The fact that you mentioned a lot of the more civilian sites like we referenced before made me think that they are a good candidate for this feature, but at the same time, who uh, just taking taking the four biggest sites that I can think of off the top of my head: AOL, Google, Facebook, and Yahoo. Aside from a couple of people who may predate AOL in the sense of Juno or some of the other alternative services of the dial-up era, or people that have been predominantly Microsoft geared, uh, Hotmail accounts and the like, there's not too many places that those big four, AOL, Yahoo, Facebook, and Google, don't reach already. And it's a rather big surprise to think that you would really need anything else. And I know that they put the rest of them out there, like VeriSign and MyOpenID, more out of convenience. But the the fact exists that some people will not wish to centralize their authentication in a manner that OpenID dictates. And that's a, that's an absolutely, that's a very smart idea to, to have put forward. Yeah, exactly. In fact, on our security show, we mentioned a, a program called LastPass that would basically keep the passwords and you know generate a random password for each individual site that you use. Basically, uh, OpenID and requiring a single logon for multiple sites sort of circumvents that. And it, it leads to situations where if somehow your OpenID password is compromised, then they have access to a lot of your accounts. So I know a lot of people are not going to, you know, even if they may have a Facebook account or a Google account, they may not want to 
associate that with like their Stack Exchange account or their Discuss account just because they don't want to have something where if, if one account is compromised, then everything is compromised. Yeah, it's the same exact discussion that people have had with Microsoft when Passport was really making inroads in the early 2000s, I believe it was. It's the same discussion that happens in context of Facebook Connect, of Google Connect, and it happened all over again with OpenID. I've been involved with the OpenID community since Brad Fitzpatrick re- uh, announced it as Yadis, uh, Y-A-D-S, yet another distributed identity service, I believe. And as soon as it was more ratified, standardized, and the OpenID board was formed, I've had a, an OpenID attached to my domain ever since. So when I first came across Stack Exchange, I just logged in because I was already prepared for it. And it wasn't until this uh, OpenID server discussion started happening that I actually went to see what their sign up dialogue does now and unsurprisingly previously it would just send you to my open id which has been a great trivial free service to just get in there get the get the process over with and now they can now stack exchange can keep that traffic local to their own site with the with the known the known aspect that now they have to secure their user information a lot more heavily as if they likely weren't doing that already well, it's interesting to bring up my open ID because um, when I was actually going through the password requirements, I was sort of uh, analyzing the different requirements that those primary sites that were on the the, the Stack Overflow login page, uh, what, what what basically what the requirements that they had were, and my open ID has no requirements. Like literally, as long as you put in a password, at least one character, any character, it will accept it. And I think that's actually a really good, well, I, it's probably not a really good policy for, for people that aren't aware of the dangers of weak passwords, but I think it's really good that they're basically allowing people to uh, say, okay, well, I know this account is only going to be used to, say, log in to you know, discuss, and I don't care about the, my password for security for discuss, and I know that I'm just going to, you know, it's much easier for me to remember, you know, spot my dog's name, so I'm just going to use that. And you know, uh, spot you know four characters, all all letters would likely be rejected by most other services. Mm-hmm. But if you if you make a conscious decision and say you know I I recognize that there's that risk, but the convenience of having a less secure password is better for me, then I I support that they are allowing people to make that decision for themselves. One way that some sites have kind of tried to carry that out in terms of. Um, letting you pick a weak password if you understand the risk is kind of a little meter that more and more sites are starting to use that kind of fills up the stronger your password gets. It's you know starts out red, it says weak, and then as your password gets longer and better as you type it, it kind of gradually fills up and turns green and says strong. So that way people can kind of get a sense of, oh my, this is a weak password, somebody could get in, so I'll choose a stronger one. Or this is a weak password, I'm okay with this. Yeah, um, my open idea actually does have one of those little meters that that measures the strength of the password, but it it doesn't do anything with it. It just says, oh, this is a weak password, and then you just hit OK, and then, you know, it just lets you create the account. So it's, yeah, yeah, it gives you the best of both worlds. It tells you, you know, that your password is potentially weak, but it also says it doesn't prevent you from creating an account with it. 
And me and Kyle have had a couple discussions about this particular topic in private, and we both go we the conversation is basically consisted of everything you always hear about with regard to password security. We talk about how well Stack Exchange with its concept of reputation and its concept its its motivation for being being the best source for the best answers to a given question that they don't want accounts to be compromised because then they run the risk of the spam problem multiplying and to their credit stack exchange is a very clean site with with adequate reaction time for moderators to do the job that they've elected to be a part of um, stack exchange is very devoid of a lot of this crap that you just see on joe joe user's web forum that he set up on a free hosting service and they don't want that to change so i understand their motivation in that aspect and also as a technologically minded computer firm that they want people to have stringent passwords kyle has understand and agreed with that and has made the case that it's going to happen even if you have a strong password because that's why phishing exists uh, phishing and even more directly spear phishing it's it's the conversation that will always happen as long as we have this password scheme in place what is what is spear phishing spear so phishing is I I'm going to look like Chase and I'm going to send an email out to everybody. And if you happen to have a Chase account and you go to my fake login page, I'm going to get your credentials. Spear phishing is using whatever information possible, be it like a Facebook profile, to figure out exactly what the person does, exactly where the person goes, exactly what accounts they have. Or if you know the person personally, you obviously know this information from uh, prior instances. Spear phishing... Think think of a spear that you find a fish and you target the fish, throw it straight in the water. Spear fishing is gathering details about one specific person and targeting them with it that increases the degree of uh, legitimacy. Well, actually, I kind of feel slightly differently. I mean, with the exception of the moderator accounts, there's really not a whole lot of damage that a single user account can do on Stack Exchange. Um, I mean... For things like deleting, closing, all that stuff, you have to have multiple people vote. For things like editing, those things can be easily reverted. And if there's some user that's suddenly gone like rogue, you can just flag it up for a moderator, and a moderator can just go through and undo everything that they've done and suspend the user. So it's yeah, I, I'm not I'm not saying that it's hard, permanent, or difficult to uh, undo, but time-consuming, and it will affect the people who get there before action has been taken. Uh, granted, this this is likely an issue that's going to affect smaller sites, the, the new up-and-coming sites, and the ones that perhaps, that perhaps have less moderator coverage than something like the big three that probably have at least six or eight people overlapping at a minimum at any hour of the day. I suppose so, uh, but I still, th- I still think it's a little a little ironic that Back before services like Google, Facebook, and all that stuff had OpenID endpoints, that the the OpenID provider that Stack Exchange was promoting was MyOpenID that has no password <laughs> restrictions at all. Mm-hmm. And it's just they seem to have gone in the complete opposite direction. Now, I'm saying that, you know, having strong passwords is good. And enforcing a sort of minimum level of password strength, I think that that ultimately is good as well. A lot of people are used to having to type at least six characters in for a password. And a lot of people are used to maybe having like a number or something in there. But uh, forcing people to have at least eight, pa- eight, eight characters and to rather eight 
uh, unique characters. Actually, that's something that I didn't mention, but they, all the characters have to be unique. So eight unique characters, and you have to have at least three of the lowercase letter, uppercase letter, number, and a special character. Like I said, I don't have any passwords like that, and I think a lot of other people don't as well. And it's going to make it harder for people to come up with those passwords that, that meet those criteria. It's going to be harder for them to remember them. So I think that basically if you take that in conjunction with the fact that in this specific instance, where can a weak password be compromised but a strong password not be compromised? Like what, what are those circumstances? And they're actually surprisingly narrow. Like if you have a keylogger on someone's machine, it doesn't matter how strong or weak the password is, they're going to get the password. Or, you know, if there's some sort of uh, phishing attack where they, you know, send you a fake website or, uh, that looks like Stack Exchange and you type in your password, they're going to get any password that you type in. So it's really only in cases where, like, the, the Stack Exchange service has been compromised and their password hashes are vulnerable and there's some sort of brute force attack. And so you have to basically say, well, what is the real likelihood of that happening? And hopefully there are going to be competent people monitoring the service, and I know there will be because the Stack Exchange team is great. Uh, so something like that is very unlikely to happen. So it's just, to me, it seems like something that it's it provides a marginal benefit, but it also has a significant cost. Yeah. <laughs> ultimately, ultimately, I understand and agree with the majority of that. The Stack Exchange chose to be significantly more stringent than most other services, and yeah. that's their choice, and well, it's theirs to make. Are you? Are any of you guys using uh, the uh, new Stack Exchange OpenID yet? Nope. I have my own, and I'm sticking with it. Is there a, a compelling reason to switch from a Google or or similar OpenID to a Stack Exchange? Vanity. A unique. Uh, yeah, not that I know of. Um, well, l- right. yeah, you you did mention Vanity, Jason. Actually, uh, they do provide a Vanity URL. I, I'm not sure what it is, but you know, it's like something like openid.stackexchange.com slash whatever you want. So if you sign up sooner rather than later, you might be able to get like your first name or your initials or something before the service fills up and you have to pick from less desirable vanity URLs. But ultimately, yeah, I prefer to use the Google uh, service just because I'm already reasonably secure on there. I already have my password. I know what that password is. And... I mean, I am a moderator, so I do care about the security of my accounts. So, I, I, it is telling that I am, you know, I'm, I'm basically protecting the access with the same thing that I'm protecting the access to one of the most important uh, digital services that I use, and that's my Gmail account. So, I mean, I do take the security seriously. Don't get me wrong, but at the same time, I don't want to you know, have to come up with uh, an additional password that I'm not going to remember and and risk that happening. So and 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 <laughs> and even if I do forget the password or or whatever to my OpenID login, there is a, a feature where you can always just go in and you can say, you know, I I forgot how to get into my account. Can you send me an activation email? And if you have an email address on your account, it'll send uh, an email to that, and you can get back into your account. So if I didn't protect it with with my Google account, basically there would now be two ways of getting into my account instead of one. So anyway, so moving on, we also want to mention that there's going to be an unofficial Stack Exchange WWDC meetup. WWDC happens in 
California from June 6th to the June 10th this year. Uh, and there's going to be a Stack Exchange meetup on June 7th at Eddie Rickenbacker's. So uh, if anyone wants to go to that, there is a post on meta.apple.stackexchange.com, uh, basically uh, the meta site for Ask Different. And you can uh, see the link there for the, the for signing up to that. And we'll also toss a link to that in our show notes as well. And we also wanted to sort of throw out a brief um, request for anyone that is going to WWDC. Maybe there's a way we can maybe have someone that, that goes to the conference to get on the podcast in some fashion. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you're going to WWDC and you want to be on the show, just, you know, give us a, you know, an email. It's podcast at askdifferent.net it'll also be in the show notes and at the end of the show as well so we'd love to have you on and hopefully we can line something up so in more general news there was sort of a little bit of an update on what we had talked about previously uh, about the iMac and their their hard drive uh, temperature firmware sensor thing and apparently it can be controlled by software Nathan, did you know what software that that was going to be used to do that? Yeah, the there are two pieces of software that can kind of access the the IMAX uh, SMC, which controls among other things the fan speed, and they will they claim that they will control the fan speed for you even if you have a third party hard drive, so you can avoid the uh, full speed all on all the time default behavior. So one of them is called HDD Fan Control. That's their website, hddfancontrol.com. And that, that talks to the uh, smart capabilities of your hard drive. And just about every hard drive these days is smart capable. And so it, it figures out what temperature it is, and it'll turn on the fan based on that temperature. Basically like the built-in firmware only third-party and overriding what's in there already. And there's no hardware modification that you have to do. You just... You can either stick with the default values or change some sliders to control the behavior of the fan. And the other app is called SMC Fan Control, which which has actually been around since before this problem really came up, and it does something similar. It lets you control the fan speed of your Mac. Both of these solve the problem of not being able to comfortably put an extra a third-party hard drive in your iMac because of the fan speed issue. Yeah, ideally... We shouldn't have to use apps like this, but it's good that they're available. And for people that you know do want to replace their hard drives, at least there's there's something available to them to control the fan speed of their Macs. So all this talking about like iMacs and stuff has uh, got me thinking about what the the state of Apple hardware is going to be sort of in the next six months to a year, and you know, how they're going to sort of continue rolling out uh, some of the updates that they've started on some of the newer refreshes to the rest of the product line. Did you have any thoughts on this, Jason? Yeah, I, we've this, this is obviously something that happens continually, but when there's no particularly new technology that comes along that, that, that Apple wants to start adding in, then we occasionally hear about the, the refresh update that comes to hardware, that being predominantly better spec RAM or perhaps more at a minimum, a new CPU architecture, and then they call it done. That's the, that happens more frequently because, you know, inventing a new technology and rolling it out is significant. We know right now that 
Thunderbolt is Apple's new big take-up that they're starting to roll out, and as of yet, they only have it on the iMacs and the MacBook Pro. One imagines that this year they're going to refresh the Mac Minis, which are do for this anyways. The last update that they had was the new body style with the screw bottom that uh, made the RAM serviceable. Uh, I don't believe it was the hard drive. I believe it was just the memory itself. And that also added a native HDMI port. Uh, along with, of course, CPU and RAM improvements and whatnot. The Mac Mini is a big candidate for Thunderbolt. It's interesting to think about whether or not the original MacBook is going to get, the plastic MacBooks are going to get a Thunderbolt part, predominantly because they killed the FireWire port on it. And it's something that we're personally expecting to see in the next couple of months, but and it likely will be there, considering that the MacBooks do have an external display port and Thunderbolt, piggybacks, or should I say uh, DisplayPort piggybacks Thunderbolt. Um, so that's that's inevitable, inevitably going to be here whenever Apple decides to finally roll that out. The Mac Pros are another very obvious one that people are very surprised they haven't seen already. Uh, I believe the buyer's guide at Mac Rumors said that the Mac Pro is very overdue for its annual refresh, and when that comes, there will likely be I'm personally thinking there might be three or four Thunderbolt parts because there's going to be the ones on the front, which uh, the current Mac Pros have two FireWire 800 ports on the front, and I can see those being replaced by Thunderbolt. Alternatively, there may be one Thunderbolt, one FireWire. And then on the back, again, for display purposes and additional accessory purposes, we're expecting to see Thunderbolt on the back of the chassis as well. Given that the Xserve body type has gone away, that's unlikely to happen. Uh, and I, I guess the point to make there is the possibility for Mac Mini servers to be refreshed as well, featuring Thunderbolt as opposed to just the original Mac Minis. Yeah, I think that because they did get rid of the X-Serves, that they may actually be introducing a, um, a different form factor for the Mac Pro that is more easily rack-mountable. At least I hope they do, because it's you know having Mac servers is very key to being able to um, roll out Macs in an enterprise situation. So I hope that they, I know they killed the hardware, maybe they weren't making any money on it, but I still think that they should have some sort of solution for people that really do want to run with Mac servers. Mm -hmm. And last word was that the way forward with the server distribution is going to be a Mac Pro or a Mac Mini server or really anything. And that brings back the mention that Lion is going to have all the server capabilities built in with no difference in media. That means that you're going to save $500 on an unlimited client license and any any additional money for unique hardware that, they're, that they've decided to... Uh... Well, I don't necessarily think that Lion server is going to, you know, just be automatically bundled with the regular Lion. I can definitely see maybe like you you buy uh, the server upgrade in the App Store for a few hundred dollars. I could definitely see that, but I do think that it was definitely smart to create a base version of the operating system that that you could then add the server capabilities on top of instead of having two separate install versions and and stuff like that. It makes it easy to sort of repurpose existing like desktops that you might, you know, like you, you might buy a regular Mac Mini at the Apple Store, and then you could just automatically, you know, install the server version from the App Store. So yeah, that's I didn't really think about that. That the App Store enables the ability to download what 
amounts to pretty much just a license, a, a software unlock, since the App Store will only uh, sell an actual application bundle. I don't know. Uh, a part of me kind of wonders to what extent the server is actually going to exist in things other than the LDAP directory, the postfix mail system if they choose to continue using it, and then possibly also the Jabber server. Everything else has been reasonably covered with the announcements of Lion server so far. File sharing exists in all forums on every version of OS X that they have they have the ability to enable Samba in in the sharing preferences. They have the ability to enable FTP in the sharing preferences. And I guess the only difference is that I don't think NFS server exists in OS X client, only OS X server. But especially with the talk about airdrop and whatnot, file sharing as a whole is already covered and can be and can continue to be completely covered uh, as as of Lion's release. We'll see. It, it remains to be seen. That's obviously all that can really be said right now. Yeah, and sort of going back to the MacBook a bit, I actually think that once we see Thunderbolt ports on the MacBook Airs, that we may actually see the discontinuation of the plastic MacBook. That a single Thunderbolt port on a MacBook Air can serve as, you know, Ethernet, it can serve as display, it can serve as FireWire. Uh, obviously, there will still be another USB port on there. I think that there really won't be a, a use case for the plastic MacBook um, because it, it's virtually the same price as the existing 11-inch MacBook Air. <laughs> the death of the uh, the plastic-cased computers for in Apple's case. Yeah, I think they've been working towards that for a long time, that they really want to sort of close the white plastic chapter in their history. And then the MacBook names freed up to freeze up to be talking explicitly about the series, but not any one particular computer. Right. There's always the qualifier of the Air or the Pro. So it's been about two weeks since we last recorded, and it's been kind of a big two weeks in terms of Mac security with... Uh, uh, there's a, a Trojan program called Mac Defender that's been making the rounds quite a bit. Uh, Nathan, what is Mac Defender? Mac Defender is one of the first big malware pieces for the Mac, and this kind of stuff has existed on Windows for ages. And there's tons of it. Basically, what happens is it starts as a a pop-up on a website that shows a fake picture that looks like it came from your Mac. It doesn't actually. It's just it's just some photo that they've created, um, but it looks like it's a Mac application that says uh, your Mac has this many viruses, here are their names, click this button to remove them. And it looks, the, the website pop-up looks like it's actually part of Finder on your Mac. So if, if you don't look closely, I mean, if you examine it, it's clear that it isn't, but at first glance, it certainly looks like it. And so if you are... Uh, if you're unprepared for this, you may click the uh, Remove Viruses button, which will install the software to your computer. Well, it will download the software to your computer, and then you install it if, if, you, uh, if, you, if you make the decision to do so. And once you install it, it starts doing bad things. And the, uh, the ultimate goal is to get the credit card number of the user when they try to buy it or pay for various services from it. So the basically the life cycle is 
you get the pop-up, you download the software, you install it, and then you give it their credit card number. You give it your credit card number, which they steal. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that for a while people have been told that you know Macs don't get viruses. And if you believe that, you know, if you really truly believe that and you saw something that pops up on your computer that said, oh, your Mac has a virus, you would immediately say, oh, no, that can't be possible. I know my Mac, you know, can't get viruses. And then you close the thing and you're all set. It, you know, you're, you're still protected. But if you're like, oh, no, you know, my computer has a virus and then you click on it and you download it and install it. Now your computer does have a virus. It's kind of one of those self-fulfilling prophecies where if you believe what the, what the fake screenshot is telling you, then you're going to enter a series of, of circumstances in which you will then cause what you set out to prevent. <laughs> um, but it is concerning that this, this may potentially be the first of a long line of these sort of crafted attacks that sort of get people... That prey on people and try to get people to uh, in- install these these viruses or, or Trojans rather. And Mac Defender is apparently pretty easy to remove. All you have to do is quit the application and delete it. But there could, you know, once you give it your admin password, there's the potential for something to install itself very deeply in the system and to make it very hard to remove. Um, I know from experience trying to remove legitimate things that install themselves in stuff like LaunchD that they're very hard to actually uh, completely eradicate. We've, this... seen, we've seen this kind of scareware phishing on Windows for a long time, and it's generally pretty effective is the, the problem, just because people are not educated enough to, to know that anything you see in your web browser is going to be fake and that you should learn the interface of your virus protection software so that you know exactly what it looks like and so that you can be sure that what you're seeing is legitimate and that you're not just going to install some fraudulent antivirus stuff. And nobody is actually going to tell you on, on a website for free that you have a virus. They're only The only time that that'll happen is when they want you to install their virus. Right. And... I think that's that's one of the big points here is that the dangerous dangerous malware is the stuff that magically well not magically that without your permission without your action works its way into your system and starts causing problems. This is software that you install. And so this is very easy to prevent by not installing it. It's not like some of the nastier windows malware that just kind of downloads itself, installs itself, and then starts breaking things. This is it doesn't do anything like that. So you and Apple has actually published a response on their website and their support website about how to avoid and remove Mac Defender. And it's to avoid it, it just says in order to avoid installing the software, it just says don't click install, just close the browser window when uh when you get this pop up. And then they talk about how to remove it. They say, don't put in your credit card information, and then um, quit the application, and then delete it, and empty your trash. That's all you have to do to remove it. And you won't even have to do anything to remove it if you don't install it. And hopefully, once this gets around a little bit more and people become more educated, they won't be installing it. That's the ultimate resolution. Yeah, what's also interesting is that Apple has been working on a more general solution for this since before the, the Mac Defender scare even existed, and that is, of course, the Mac App Store, 
where I could just definitely see in maybe Lion or, or future versions of Mac OS X that out of the box, they will not run any software that is not either built into the system or downloaded through the Mac App Store. Now, if they go this route, they... I, I hope, I really, really hope that they have like a little checkbox in the system preferences that says, you know, allow uh, third-party untrusted software, blah, 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 make it sufficiently scary so that regular people won't uncheck it, but that geeks like us will be able to continue to install the software that we want on our Macs. So if they have that situation in place, then even if Mac Defenders, even if people download it and people double-click to install it, Mac OS X will probably say, uh, sorry, you can't install. You can't run this program because it's not signed by Apple or something like that. Or you know, Apple does not trust the contents of this program, and that I think would be a very effective way for people that aren't geeks like us to basically protect themselves. The other thing Apple's doing is that they they've promised a software update that will remove this automatically, and so that is if assuming that the amount of malware for Mac stays low enough and the the uh, progress of the malware and how quickly uh, new, new pieces are created, assuming that stays slow enough, then Apple can kind of keep up and just kill this stuff as soon as it comes out with a software update. And since most people are pretty good about installing software updates for their Mac, just because software update is automatic and pretty easy and not very painful... <laughs> then, well, then they can kind of keep a pretty good handle on this by by just having it baked into the operating system protection against particular threats. Yeah, I as long as it doesn't require a restart, which it may, but hopefully it doesn't. Um, I know from even my own personal experience that anything that requires the restart, you know, the thing with the little triangle beside it in the... Um, right in the, the the software update panel that I might even go for like weeks without updating uh, the stuff that requires restarts just because I'm never really in a situation where I, I have the the desire and time to restart my computer right now and wait for it to install. You know, I'd much rather just say, okay, you know, you want to install your iTunes QuickTime, whatever, that's fine. You know, macOS 10.6.0 10 or whatever it is you know I'll, that'll have to wait <laughs> i have to say the one part of the windows updater that i kind of like is how it will when you click shut down there's an op if, if there are updates available when you click shut down it'll say you know i'm going to download and install some updates and then shut down and uh it, of course it gives you the option to shut down without the updates but i kind of think that that's a a better way to handle this kind of thing, at least for me, because if I'm shutting down the computer anyway, that's fine. I'm probably going to be walking away so it can take its extra five minutes. But if I actually want to keep using it, which is when software update usually pops up, then I'm more likely to say, no, do it later and then forget. Yeah, I agree with that too. I actually, I'm still pending the whole slew of updates that have happened since the last Safari update. And because I always forget to go into software update and actually get it to just do the install process i haven't applied them yet and it's not particularly uh it's not particularly a big deal to me because it's just like the i think there's an iphoto update in there the digital raw camera capability update in there which are for cameras i don't have and then i don't use safari at the moment but it's it's definitely 
the part of me knows that I would like to get those updates in there just in case the need is ever there. But because they're not OS updates, I just haven't taken the plunge yet. And since I'm not reminded, it hasn't happened. It is. It isn't getting done. Yeah. So sort of moving on a little bit, uh, Apple just celebrated their 10th anniversary of their retail stores, and they made a few changes to how they uh, they're laid out. And one of the biggest changes that you'll you'll immediately notice when you walk in is that they've replaced all the um, all the paper things in the in the plastic that would that were beside every product that would sort of describe what the product was. They replaced all of them with iPads. And, you know, when I heard about this, uh, when I heard about that they were going to do this, I thought, well, okay, well, you know, they'll probably have like an iPad or two per table because there are, there are multiple tables that have multiple products in the App Store. I thought, you know, they'll probably have like one per table. But no, beside every single product, including the iPads, like you'll have an iPad and you'll have, you know, an iPad beside it telling you about the iPad. Uh, <laughs> Seems a little excessive, actually. <laughs> uh, an iPad next to an iPod Shuffle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, got this tiny little iPod Shuffle. Boom, huge iPad telling you all the uh, all the two features that it has. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it it is good that you know if people do have questions about this stuff, then they can actually go through the interface on the iPad to learn more about the product that they have. And there's actually even a um, there's a button on there that you can use to call a specialist over. So you can just hit the button and presumably you'll be put in some sort of queue that when there's a free specialist, they'll come over and of course they know exactly which iPad has, has indicated that they wanted uh, attention and they'll just come right over. You know, in fact, I have to say, I wish that restaurants would have these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that that's... Go ahead and elaborate. I'll, I'll not take over your idea. Oh well, well, basically, you know, if I'm at if I'm in a restaurant, you know, uh, the most frustrating thing for me is finding, you know, the waitress or the waiter, and it can be, you know, like you're running out of soda or something, or you know, you're ready for the check or whatever, and you're sort of like looking around. You're like, okay, you know, where's my waitress? Where's my waiter? And eventually, you know, they sort of, you know, they're they're waiting on another table, but they're not really looking your way, so you're kind of, you know, you're raising your hand a little bit, trying to get their attention, and it's just a, it's a kind of a bad situation. And also, like, if they had an iPad on the table, instead of having, you know, them come over, instead of waiting for them to come over and ask if you're ready to place your order, you just place your order right on the iPad, and it just gets sent right to the kitchen, and then it's just brought out when you're ready. And you want dessert, you just order dessert. You know, if you want your check, you can pay right through the iPad. It, It sounds like a... It seems like it's something that would work really well for a restaurant. As soon as you said putting that on the table, my mind just ran away with the ideas. Because um, I actually I actually have kind of a, a exact opposite case in that, yeah, it would be convenient to intercom a waiter or a waitress over when they're preoccupied with something else and you want to actually get their attention. But honestly, I want the reverse exactly as much. When I'm at a restaurant, we're having an engaging conversation. You know, we're, we're busy doing our own thing and we're fine. I don't like people checking up on me. And even just the other day, some fancier restaurants, um, the the waiters can be kind of, I, I'm, it's not their intention, but they can be kind of obnoxious with making sure everything's fine and making sure that we don't need something else and just ensuring that everything's cooked properly and it's tasting good. 
They want a big tip. That's what it is. Yeah, but it's excessive to the point of a nuisance. And I would love for them to. I would love for them to make a casual check in, but not be not be on top of every little thing, especially when there isn't actually something we need their attention for. I appreciate it, waiters and waitresses. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate your service, but there's a there's a line for everybody, and to be able to control that more in a non intrusive manner would be very helpful. Um, and yeah, the point the point that you started to make as well. Stick a car, stick a uh, square reader in the top of that, or any uh, full case swipe mechanism, and just let me pay for myself and leave when I leave when I want to. If I don't if I don't need a box, if I don't need anything else, then you guys can have your time to assist another customer that may need it for any other reason. If I if I want to get in and get out and go to a particular restaurant, that would be this would be wonderful. And you can even imagine it's it's good for like a restaurant owner where uh, with, instead of having individual waitresses or waiters for each set of tables, then they could just have a pool of people that would respond to uh, events. So if someone requests something, um, you know, requests service from, from someone that you'd have someone go over there. You know, if, if a, an order is done in the kitchen, someone would just bring the food over. And so you're able to be more flexible with your wait staff because, you know, you don't have to wait for, you know, your waitress to be ready to bring your food out in order, you know, for your food to get to you. So it gives you a faster, better experience. Absolutely. I don't know how this turned into... Um, <laughs> talk about Re- restaurant feature request. <laughs> iPads everywhere. That's that's why iPads everywhere. It'll revolutionize the world and the entire retail chain. Oh yeah. Oh definitely. And I yeah. You mentioned the Square readers. In fact, um, they are the Square is like really heavily trying to push their point of sale systems based on on iPads and iPod touches and iPhones and stuff, so that. Uh, you know, like you'll walk up to like a coffee shop or something and, you know, you'll say, oh, you know, I want a large Frappuccino, hold the whipped cream or something like that. And then they'll just tap it right into an iPad that's sitting, acting as a register right there. And then you hand them your credit card, they swipe it through the square reader. And this $500 iPad replaces a $5,000 touchscreen point of sale system. (laughs) And, you know, it, it just makes good business sense all around, you know? Speaking speaking of Square and the Apple stores, there's actually something that I that I thought about. Um, Square gives their readers away for free online. You have to you have to fill out a couple of necessary information like your social security number for credit purposes and whatnot. But Square has a presence in Apple stores. Do they charge a small amount for them? And do they? And does the Apple Store collect all of this information, or do you actually know the extent of this, Kyle? Um, I, I don't. I don't know the exact thing. What I think I read, and if if what I say is not correct, we'll obviously put the correct information in our show notes. But I think what it is is they're like five dollars in the Apple stores, and you get like five dollars of credit or something to that effect, so that it's ultimately free, but you do have to pay something in the Apple Store. Probably the accounting, the detailed accounting purposes, Apple still needs to have something because they can't just give away products in their store, but it comes back to you. And then presumably the activation, you go back to Square to activate it, you don't have to hand your social security number over to Apple. Oh, yeah, and plus Apple wants to make money. I mean, you know, if Apple's going to have something in their store, you, you, you better be you, you better know that they're going to make money on it so <laughs> i know square is probably losing a you know from the manufacturing of the device to 
placing them in the in the Apple stores to giving away the credit. I'm sure they're losing quite a bit of money on each sale that they're hoping to make up for uh, by having people process a lot of transactions through their service. They are hoping they will recoup it in the fact that their product will be more widely available to anybody walking through the store, which is a lot more people than hear about it and check them out online. Yeah. Well, um, a few days ago, Amazon announced that they are going to, well, that they have started a, a Mac download store where, you know, instead of having to buy the retail software and have it shipped to you from Amazon, you're able to just download it directly. Uh, did you have any more details on this, Jason? Yeah, Amazon. There's a there was a big brouhaha that Amazon is continuing its uh, encroachment of of competing with so many people, and this one is that they are now offering Mac software for everybody in a very similar manner as the Mac App Store, except that it's still purely browser based. I didn't compare a lot of the prices we we covered previously. That the Mac App Store has a couple of applications, Aperture for example, that are grossly discounted as compared to buying at retail, but Amazon has a lot more. I would say traditional software. They're offering digital downloads of Microsoft Office for Mac, various uh, language learning applications, and then financial applications such as Quicken, TurboTax, and uh, H&R Block. I believe the process works similarly to how their music store works and that you pay through it for the website and they have a downloader and installer application that um, retrieves the licenses that you're allowed that you've paid for and downloads it and preps it and puts it on the system in the manner necessary. Yeah, it's um, I believe what it does is it, it when you hit download, then it just downloads a very small executable that you then run and then what it does is it fetches the actual program that you're downloading and then automatically installs it. Yeah, so. the, the the download the download link from Amazon downloads and uh downloads a downloader. <laughs> uh wonderful recursion and indirection in here. Downloading from Amazon is just a management system much kind of like the I think Adobe has something similar and uh Similar to how Blizzard does their game updates, their significant game updates, that you get a wrapper application that entitles you to download anything that you've actually purchased on the Amazon Download Center. Yeah, I can sort of see this as being a precursor to them actually developing their own uh, Mac OS X application that you can use very similarly to the App Store. That will, you know, you, you run it, you give it your admin password, and... Uh, you can buy stuff directly from the app. You're going to just install it directly from the app, you know. I don't know if they're going to go in that direction like Apple did because Apple um, – Gruber had a talk on this at a convention some time ago. I think I think it might have been a keynote at Macworld that he defends Apple's choice of setting everything up as an application because it's still using web requests on the back end. Um, and that definitely is the direction they're going. Look at iTunes. Look at the App Store. Look at well, software update is kind of a bad example considering how the rest, how every other OS uses it. But iTunes and the App Store are just wrappers for content that you actually can view on the web. And now that they've actually made it accessible on the web, like when you see an app preview before actually hitting view in iTunes, they're really fleshing it out on the website, but they still put all this the key bits in the application. Where Google and Amazon and a couple of other people take the opposite stance, that everything's on the web, and because the web isn't isn't to the extent that it needs to be, they still have to have this little helper application that actually exists as an application on on their on your computer but i don't 
I don't see Amazon changing that, to be perfectly honest. Uh, Amazon.com is their staple, and I think they will continue using that for the 98% case. Well, it's not unprecedented, though, because they, you know, a few months ago, they did announce their Android app store, um, and Amazon it basically provides a an alternative to the Android market that you can download, you can install. You do have to go through a similar process that we sort of talked about earlier, where you have to go into Android settings and say, allow installations from third-party sources or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, it, you know, you do get an actual application that runs on the device. Now, whether or not that's that's because it's it's a necessary technical requirement, uh, I'm not sure. But I I can definitely see them uh, going for at least some sort of native application that, you know, maybe it does wrap, maybe it just provides some Chrome around their their website for for downloading applications and provide some sort of handoff so that the app, uh, the the native application can automatically download whatever the customer has purchased but i uh, you know if amazon smart i think they'll go that way and sort of try to compete with uh, apple's app store on their own turf as opposed to limiting it to uh, a website and have downloading all these tiny little installers and, and downloaders and stuff and the landscape is changing at the same time, though. And we spoke about Chrome OS, and already the Chrome Web Store exists. That takes place entirely in a, in a browser because the browser is the app, and because Google can bake it right into Chrome. So yeah, it's a because you can only launch it in Chrome. It's perhaps it's a bit a bit of a bad comparison to make, but we're gravitating to the web more and more. Um, I don't know. My my stance is that Amazon is a web company, and they are going to remain so. But we'll see. Okay. Well, I think we will. I certainly, like I mentioned last episode, I certainly hope that they create native applications for their cloud player service. I'm kind of looking forward to that so I can finally, you know, get rid of 80 gigs of of music (laughs) and stuff on my hard drive. (laughs) Well, our, our main topic of the week this week is, or the past two weeks or whatever, is basically the big topic, uh... Of the of the Apple sphere of the last two weeks, and that is Lodsys, which, in a nutshell, basically Lodsys uh, on on May thirteenth, we got reports of several developers. Uh, one of them being uh, the the developer of, of PCalc, James Thompson, getting notices from Lodsys that, you know, he's infringing on their patents and. You know, they demand something, something, you know, basically a threatening letter saying that if he doesn't settle with them, that they're going to sue him for patent infringement. And it, it, it's basically, the patent is kind of a, kind of vague. It's about, like, payments and transmissions and stuff like that. It was filed, like, it was filed a long time ago. And a lot of the, the terminology that we use now was not in use then, so it's kind of hard to decipher exactly what's going on with the patent. Uh, Nilay Patel has a, a great breakdown on This Is My Next. We'll add the link in the show notes. But basically, it's a patent that at least has some validity in that it's a patent that Apple has actually already licensed from Lodsys. And in fact, on May 23rd, Apple responded basically saying that their license of this patent covers the use in all these applications that are on the App Store. So it's the ball's kind of in Lodsys's court right now to, you know, are they really going to sue these other developers and risk potential reprisal from Apple's infamous legal team? 
or are they going to you know renegotiate with Apple? Um, maybe maybe Apple will be amenable to paying them some sort of percentage of each app uh, in exchange for them not threatening their their app store uh, sellers anymore. Uh, but it, Lutz is actually only asking for a very small amount. So uh, several days after the initial letter uh, on May 17th, uh, Lutz has publicly stated that they, that they only wanted 0.575% of sales, which is half a percent. That's that's quite small in comparison to the 30% cut that Apple takes. And there are many iOS developers like Marco Arment that basically advocated that uh, instead of risking court fees and court costs and lawyer fees and stuff, that they should just pay the cost and that half a percent of the uh, of the revenue from the sale is virtually insignificant next to the amount of money that you're actually making from the sale uh, and that it's better to avoid going to court over this uh, pretty much at all costs. I got kind of a kick out of one of the things Lodz has said is that what they wanted to do to demonstrate the difference of scale is that if your application grosses a million dollars, then we only request $5,750 of those dollars. And I, I get that contrast. I get that two orders of magnitude contrast. But it seems silly to say that they only want five thousand dollars of anything, as opposed to saying that if you sell if you sell your app at one dollar and you sell a hundred copies, that they only want. My math is terrible. That they only <laughs> want five dollars and seventy five cents of it, and that no, that would actually that would be that would be five percent. They would want fifty seven cents. They would want fifty seven cents. Oh, I told you my math was terrible. <laughs> I did say I guess that means three orders of magnitude, not two. Uh, yeah. Um, anyways, it's kind of yeah, a million dollars is a big number, but so is five thousand. And it doesn't matter if you said that if you use the example of a million dollars. The key here is that they're only asking for five thousand seven hundred fifty dollars. Where it seems maybe this is just some marketing aspect of me talking, but it seems to make a lot more sense to say that they're only asking for fifty cents, fifty-seven cents of every hundred dollars. That scale seems to resonate as nothing, uh, because most of the sales in the app store are, rather, the prices of the applications are that small. A, a buck an app is one of the more one of the most frequent uh price points for any application. So to say that after you sell 100 they want 57 cents, you know, break the bank. Uh, that, that that's that just seems like a better scale to 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 speak it as. Oh, you said 100 copies of apps that are a dollar. Correct. So $1000, oh say so I guess my math was off. <laughs> I thought you meant like a hundred dollars worth of worth of sales, but yeah, a hundred dollars in sales, and they only have to pay them fifty-seven cents. You know, a thousand dollars in sales is five bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it's kind of weird because you know, if you do make a million dollars on apps, you have the money to throw around to hire a lawyer and and fight this. Basically, you know, you may even end up spending less than five thousand dollars, although it's probably not likely. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're a developer that's only, say, making, you know, $1,000 a month, you know, are you really going to want to take it to court or are you going to want to spend five bucks a month, you know, paying them? So my my opinion aspect of this is that 
I don't think considering this the cost of the royalty I I can understand and agree that just paying it to make him go away is not a terrible idea and you know legality speaking they bought the patents from Dan Abelo they are legally entitled to request this quite unfortunately in my and other people's opinions I guess the reason why I would why I wouldn't actually want to say that is the common slippery slope scenario with, with all of the talks about how patents need to be overhauled and whatnot. Yeah, you're just paying you're just paying this minuscule amount to go away. But what happens as it starts to increase? What if Lodzis down the road starts asking for more? What if there's some other patent that some that some um, some IP firm brings out and says that oh well now we want two percent? It's I feel that giving into it is giving giving into it is encouraging it and I fully I fully feel that the slippery slope scenario here is relevant and if we if uh we I'm not a developer uh if developers of iOS applications are legally covered by Apple's license then they shouldn't have to pay any more no matter how trivial it is yeah, and it's in Apple's best interest to to fight this. I mean, a lot of people are saying, well, Apple's going to take you know hands-off approach to this, and I'm glad that they're not because if they didn't, then it would, you know, it's one of those situations where, you know, Apple says, oh, yeah, you know, come on, you can use our APIs, you can use our, our purchasing systems, and you can use, you know, whatever else, and all of a sudden, you know, you as a developer uh, are suddenly hit with some sort of lawsuit uh, using these things that Apple openly encouraged you to use. And if Apple just says, oh, well, I guess, you know, I guess they're right. guess you got to pay them. I, I think that that would undermine the confidence that developers have in Apple's platform. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's definitely in Apple's best interest to aggressively go after Lodsys and, and say, you know, uh, this is definitely covered by our 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 patent agreement and and even if say for example someone comes up in the future that does not have some sort of patent agreement with apple or or whatever else and and demands stuff from individual developers i would hope that apple would also stand up and say well you know this is really our platform and we will negotiate usage of these various patents in our on our system so our question of the week is Great Apple first and third party accessories. This was asked by Steve Moser on May 16th. And so it's a community wiki question. You can go in there and you can post any any great Apple accessories that you have. It's kind of a fun question for the site and and uh Nathan, what's do you have a, an accessory or first or third party that you'd want to mention? Well, I put up the mouse I use, which is called a Razer Naga. And it is a Mac compatible gaming mouse that I I use for general use as well as gaming. And the main uh, feature that sets it apart from the other all the other mice out there is just the sheer number of buttons. It has 17 buttons that are all completely <laughs> configurable. And so you can record. Uh, one of the the best most useful parts of this mouse for me is that you can record macros for the buttons. So each uh, each of your 17 buttons that are all in one hand you can set a special uh, function, whether that's a keyboard shortcut that it'll press for you or uh, open an application, you know, any number of stuff it'll do for you. 
And so I have set up, you know, web browsing. I usually have either my hand on the keyboard if I'm filling out a form or something like that. And then I navigate using like the tab key and other keyboard controls. Or if I'm just kind of browsing around having fun, reading news, I use the mouse. And what I didn't like about using the mouse without all these extra buttons is going to, you know, clicking the new tab button or clicking the X button on a tab or going up to, uh, you know, clicking the address bar, anything like that. I didn't like doing that because it meant a lot of extra moving and it slowed me down a lot. When I'm on the, the keyboard, I can use keyboard shortcuts for all that, and that moves so much quicker. And I know there are a lot of people who prefer using the keyboard for everything, and I'm one of them. And the problem with web browsing is that you can't do that all the time, so that's why I'm glad I have the mouse, because I've got buttons for all this, all these common functions, so I don't have to move the mouse from whatever I'm doing to create a new tab or to close a tab or to move over a tab any of that kind of thing. And so I'm I'm gradually training myself to use all the buttons and I want to be there so that I use all of them but I'm not quite there yet. I use right now I use 12 for uh for web browsing, but I've got five more that I can kind of tap into. How do you make and, sure um, that you're hitting the right button though? Uh well, let's see. The the way the layout is it's got a left and right click of course and a scroll wheel and so I've got right, left and right click or left and right quick click the scroll wheel if you it scrolls up and down. Um, if you push it, for me, it's expose for all windows. And then it's got two buttons that your index finger, kind of on the side of the left click button. It's got two buttons for your index finger. And I've got one of them as uh, open in a new inactive tab. So I, I hover over a link and it basically command clicks on it for me. And then the other index finger button is a back button. And then there's a thumb grid that is basically a three by four uh, grid of of buttons, and they each have a little glowy number on them. So, uh, the, and then they are some of them have bumps on them, so you can figure out where they are. And so, really, I've just gotten used to which one is where. And I the I think I use what is it? I, I think I probably use about six of them, uh, five or six of them on the thumb grid for web browsing. And I just kind of know which one is where by now. But if I'm ever you know if I'm ever not sure, I can use the the button. I can use the little number label to see. One of the great things about this mouse is that it's actually fully functional on a Mac. Most of the other gaming mice and other mice don't have a driver for the Mac, so you can use it to point and click, but beyond that, none of the Mac, you can't record a macro, you can't call a macro, nothing like that. And so this mouse really works well, and it's got, you can, you can set up the macros, you can use the macros, and then it's got also all the other high-end adjustments like sensitivity and acceleration and you know, you can even change the sensitivity uh, axis independently. It's it's really powerful uh, software for the Mac side, including you can set up multiple profiles. So I've got a, a web use profile, I've got a Photoshop profile, I've got profiles for some of the games I play a lot, and a profile is just kind of a set of different macros. And um, it automatically will switch profiles for you. So I can have it when I open Chrome, it switches to the web profile. When I open Photoshop, it switches to that one. And so that it's it's really kind of a a seamless experience for for the Mac, and I feel like a lot of other mice really don't bring that. Wow, yeah, I um I have an MX Revolution, and I've uh-huh. I've configured a few of the buttons on there. Um, like there, the center button is obviously middle click, so you click on a on a link and it opens up in a in a in another tab. And one of the buttons by the thumb I've configured to be basically a a command W. 
So, you know, I can just close tabs or I can close windows or stuff like that. It's pretty easy. But I can't imagine trying to navigate that 4x3 thumb grid or even, you know, manage to hit the correct button consistently without having to look constantly. So, yeah. That... You know, how many keys did you, how many keys can you hit on the keyboard without looking? It's just another thing that you learn. Well, the keyboard's like, it's like, it's big, you know. <laughs> it's It's very hard to miss on the keyboard, but on that mouse, man. It's yeah, they're all packed right in there. I can I can kind of understand it between the screenshot and since he started talking about the bumps that actually denote the different areas because all of those grid the 12 buttons on the grid on the side of the mouse all take place with just your thumb. I can see training your muscle memory pretty quickly to get to hit the right button predominantly by um, just by the angle and how much you have to scrunch your thumb to hit a particular one, the the lower, the higher numbered ones, which are lower on the mouse, for example. It's not, it's a, uh, yeah, it is something else that you have to learn, but so is everything. Yeah, and the other thing I noticed, I went from just the built the uh, the included magic mouse to this, and I noticed that my hand didn't hurt anymore. So yeah, so it's 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 very well designed. It fits my hand well. It's it's not a very big mouse and it's not a very heavy mouse, but it's really comfortable and the way the buttons are laid out really just kind of hugs my hand and it works well. Yeah, I hate yeah. Apple mice. This is probably another rant yeah. for another time, but mm. <laughs> <laughs> I've really tried to like them. Like I have a Magic Mouse and I tried to like it, but um I can't rest my hand on it. Otherwise things otherwise clicks get messed up and you know, it's just yeah. You know, cuz cuz of the touch sensitive surface and obviously, you know, if you brush it a little bit and then all of a sudden whoosh, stuff flies around, you know, cuz it thinks you're doing a gesture, <laughs> you know. Um and before that, I had one of the mighty mice and the ball got all scrunched up. And again, I couldn't rest <laughs> I I I couldn't rest my hand on it because if I had my my uh index finger on the left-hand side of the mouse, I couldn't right click because it thought I was doing a left click because it has the touch sensitive surface because it's only one actual mechanical button inside. Uh, and then you just sort of like like look back in time and you've got the, the pro mouse, which is nothing but a huge single button. You have to hold down the control button in order to do a right click. And you have the little hockey puck mouse. And, you know, I can't think of a single uh, Apple mouse that I like. Um... In contrast, I have, like I mentioned, you know, uh, Logitech MX Revolution, and I bought that several years ago. Fantastic mouse, fits my hand perfectly, comfortable to use. You know, obviously the left and right buttons are separate, and I've got many other buttons that I can use for various other actions, and it's just, it, it's so much better for me, anyway. <laughs> well, this this is not a question about which mouse you use with your Mac, it's great first and third party accessories, so I think we should probably uh, move on and find out what Jason would like to recommend. I feel compelled to point out really quickly that between Vimium for Chrome and knowing keyboard shortcuts that well, that my hand is on the keyboard pretty much the whole time, and the only time I have to move it to the mouse is really external external activation. But that's okay, you know, that, that's that's me. Different. Uh, everybody does it a little bit differently. Um, my accessory is something that I've had around for probably a little bit upwards of a year now. Uh, our car has a line-in jack, but it does not have a iPad, uh, iPod dock cable or Bluetooth or anything of the sort. Uh, and so for a long time, all I did was get an eighth-inch to eighth-inch stereo cable, plug in my iPhone, plug it into the car, and be able to listen out through the speakers in 
uh, a lot better quality than just letting the built-in speakers do it or anything of the sort, or an FM transmitter. Oh, I, I can't stand the sound of the audio over those FM transmitters. And so Belkin makes what I call the magic button. They call it the headphone adapter, as exciting as that name is. For those with iPhones that actually get the headphones with the button, there is a uh, there is this little connector about a quarter of the way down the Apple headphones that have a volume up, a volume down. It can, it's clickable in the middle, and it and doubles as a microphone as well. I don't believe Belkin's button is a microphone, but it does all the other three. You click on the top half, it does volume up. You click on the bottom half, it does volume down. You click in the middle, and it functions as the multi-purpose button. One click is play pause. Two clicks is track forward. Three clicks is rewinds. Four clicks does something, and I don't do it, so I never remember what it is. It's just a tiny little extension that plugs, maybe maybe two-inch extension that you plug into the phone side. Important, because it's, uh, it's the three-ring, the tip ring-ring sleeve uh, capacity. And then you plug any standard line cable into the other side, and then, of course, into the input. So, basically, when I'm listening to something, I get it started and then I just chuck it on the passenger seat and start driving and if I need to pause it for anything going on or if I don't feel like listening to what I'm listening to click once or click twice and it's uh, hands-free no distraction driving yeah I've actually got something very similar in my car uh, it's called the Belkin tune base direct and it's something that plugs into your cigarette lighter and it has this little flexible extension thing where you you can actually hook uh, an iPod or, or, or an iPhone in there, and it is sort of like sitting upright, so you can easily look at the screen while you're driving, and it has a, a button on it and a, a connection to the, the headphone jack. And the button does exactly what you said, where you know you tap once and it plays or pauses the music, tap twice, it goes forward, and three times it goes back. Um, these are all standard taps that are supported by the operating system, so it's not anything special that, that the device itself is doing. Uh, but what I like about my device is that it also charges the I, iPhone that I use, and it puts it in a position where it's very easy to use the maps while I'm driving. So I usually what I do is I turn on my podcast, and then I open up the maps application and just have it centered over my current location so as I'm driving I can sort of see where I am and I can even have like routes and stuff on there to show me where I where I need to turn and stuff so it's a very good device uh, they also make a tune base FM that in, you know if you don't have a line in jack in your car you can also do an FM broadcast but like Jason said uh, I hate the, the sound quality of that and plus usually if you're living anywhere where there's other people nearby there's going to be so much uh, FM interference because there's so many FM channels nowadays that you know, it's not going to be really tenable, but if you have a line in audio jack, uh, you know, I'd recommend the, the tune base direct. <laughs> and I'm fine with my recommendation of the headphone adapter. Um, they are available in Apple stores. That's where I bought mine. Uh, I believe they're available on amazon.com and belkin.com 20 bucks. Very, very simple. I will say that one of the downsides of the headphone adapter that I keep having is I'm actually on my second one and I'm about to be on my third one because the tubing, the plastic tubing that wraps the copper always seems to, I, I, I don't know if it's getting torn by like rocks that I've tracked in and my shoes into my car, or if it's just the, the fact that I 
quite literally sometimes just toss my phone in the passenger end that if the torque, the, the act of pulling the cable a little bit but not budging because of the, the tip being inserted, that it's like removing the plastic from the housing around the button and eventually it just breaks off and then exposes the copper and it's not much longer until one of those copper wires gets clipped and then I have one channel audio. Right now, for example, the top half of the plastic is you can turn it where it's normally flexible so you can bend it a little bit right now if you hold it up the top half of the cable just goes at a right angle at a 90 degree angle because the plastic on one side is completely shredded and you see you see the copper just chilling just sitting there hanging out um and again the the next step is that i'm that one of the copper wires is going to be cut and i'm going to be without one or both channels of audio again a known downside for something that's machined that small, but it's it lasts long enough, and it's twenty bucks that every once in a while, you know, like I said, I'm already on my second one. I hate to say that I'm just throwing twenty bucks at the problem, and I'd love the reliability to be better, but until it is, it lasts almost a year at a time, so it's not as big of an issue to me. Yeah, I've had my uh, my TuneBase Direct for about a year and a half, and the only complaint that I have now is that. Uh, the thing that's holding it into the cigarette lighter is sort of, you know, it's a little looser than it used to be. So if you go around like a sharp turn, the thing will kind of like swing around. <laughs> so, but I've learned to, you know, if I'm going around a turn, I'll just hold it and then make the turn and then let go and it's fine. So uh, I don't actually have any of those audio problems that you're having. So, you know, if you're looking for a solution that might last a little longer, my suggestion is to go with the TuneBase Direct, Jason. I'll check it out. All right. Well, uh, and now my... for your second suggestion. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I uh, well, I've actually this will be my third because I I also recommended the, the revolution MX... as well. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. So I'm sort of sneaking <laughs> several in here, uh, but my my own solution is the um, the Fujitsu ScanSnap S1300, and I mentioned this on a previous show when we were talking about Spotlight, but I just thought it sort of deserves its own. It's its own spotlight. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, what it is, it's a document scanner. And I know people are thinking, oh, a scanner, you know, I, I hate using scanners. Well, that's because you haven't used a document scanner. Basically, it's like a fax machine, uh, except instead of faxing it anywhere, it, it scans it into a PDF file on your computer. So you load up a bunch of pages, you know, in the top, and then you hit the button, and it go, they go through one at a time. And it scans both the front and the back of the page, full color if you if the pages are color, otherwise it does black and white. And it's the software on the computer uh, puts it all together into a single PDF. And the image compression is really good. I typically with with other flatbed scanners, if you if you want to get a, a decent quality scan of of the document, then you're going to have to really crank up the file size, and it gets untenable after a while because you know they take up like hundreds of megabytes. But with this, it, the, the the image quality is really good, and it it filters out a lot of you know artifacts and stuff that you typically find on pages that might be wrinkled and stuff. And like if something goes in slightly crooked, it detects that, it it, it corrects it, and comes out perfectly straight. And the software has a built-in uh, optical character recognition. Uh, things so when you're done when it's done scanning the PDF uh, it will run it through the optical character recognition and it creates what it calls a searchable PDF and what this does is uh, it, it provides um, text in the file that then Spotlight can then index and then search 
So you can, you know, you can scan a whole bunch of files in, and then whenever you need to find one, you just go up to Spotlight, type in a few keywords that are in the file, and then it will pop up a few results. And in Lion, it's even better because what it will do is it will actually pop up little thumbnail images of the of the documents. So you know. It, if you, if for example, you didn't name it when you scanned it, you can actually see like a little thumbnail and see if that's actually the document that you wanna that you wanna use. So it's it's a very good scanner. It's a little pricey. Uh, it's two hundred fifty dollars, I think. It might be a little less on Amazon and stuff, but it's definitely worth it if you want to go paperless. Um, last night, the night before, I spent you know a whole bunch of time scanning probably hundreds of pages. Uh, of of stuff that I just found in like various drawers and stuff, and you know it's just a trooper. It just keeps on going. It's sort of like one of those. It's it's you know how you got like those prosumer cameras that are sort of in the consumer price range but have more professional level features. This is sort of the similar, where it gives you sort of a baseline into actual professional uh, document scanning, but at a more accessible price. Do you guys scan anything at all? we just photos <laughs> we um it's it's kind of funny that you ask that because we have a multifunction printer downstairs and since the last time we moved which was um to just just above 2 years ago we've never plugged it in it's it's a it's a flatbed scanner on top it's a printer and a copier and we've we've never plugged it into anything we just don't care it's kind of a it's kind of a we don't have to do it we don't do it often enough to trouble us to do it kind of thing and the the weird part about that is that the times that we've had to actually print out a paper coupon we've just run by like a kinkos beforehand and just given them a dime said this please and then taken it to the store that we were going to use it for it, it, it makes me feel really funny to say that we have a printer downstairs, we have paper, the ink, the toner is fine, and everything else, and we gave somebody a dime to print out a sheet for us, but it, we've literally done that twice in two years, and it's just not exactly a big part of our, uh, a big part of anything that we have to do very often. Well, the dime itself is okay. I can I can understand paying someone a dime to do that, but the fact that you physically made another stop to stop by Kinko's, <laughs> went in, gave the people some sort of electronic document, and then had them print it. I mean, that takes time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it I'm, does, and that's that's the part that's funny. Yeah, the Kinko's is literally on the way. It, you you take one turn to turn into the shopping center that has it, but. Uh, it takes time, and it's it's taken a lot less time than anything that we've been that we've spent dealing with the printer. It, it took less time than it would take to set up and actually find a good use case. Because I think one of the other reasons why we haven't plugged it in yet is because um, our computers are very disjointed. Plus, the fact that our primary computers are laptops changes the landscape of how a printer works infinitely. Um, we do have a time capsule, so we could set it up to be a print server, but there's not enough area, there's not enough um, table space, tabletop space in the area to actually plug it and not have a USB cable draped antagonistically across the floor. Um, we could put it on our dining room table, we don't want to. We could put it up on our kitchen counter, we don't want to it's just the collection of circumstances that's basically resulted in us not using and not caring about it anymore. Well, you have an iMac, right? You can just plug it into that and turn on print sharing in the, Mac OS X. The desk is very, very... Uh, uh, there, there is a lot of stuff piled on that desk that make putting a printer on there even more obnoxious. <laughs> the desk is not nearly that big upstairs. Ah, 
Yeah, it's just these circumstances that we've just kind of said, eh. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess, you know, you you found a situation or a, something, a setup that works for you, so... Yeah. I guess I guess you're you're all set with that. Do you print out your homework often, Nathan? Oh yeah, we we can't give them a digital copy or they it's not done. You know? <laughs> so I I just picked the uh there were two printers that were eligible. When you buy a new Mac, you get a $100 rebate on a printer and the uh there were two options that would have been completely free when I bought the computer so i selected well when my parents bought the computer so i selected the uh the one that had a wi-fi option so and it was it's like an epson stylus i think it looks like nx420 and it was free because it was a hundred dollars and we got a hundred dollar rebate it's reasonably fast the quality is not great on the default setting but you can push it up a little bit and it's fine for text uh, it's 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 a multifunction, so it's got a scanner and a copier the ink is not too pricey, but I basically just set it on a desk across my room, like on a little, you know, a little table and uh, connected it to our Wi-Fi and put on a couple drivers and it works fine. It can scan so, wirelessly, can't it? Yeah, I can scan wirelessly. Yeah, just image capture. Oh, I, the, the second question is going to be whether or not they distribute an application to actually take care of that, because that's that's my majority you know, of cases they... that the ScanSnap software has to be has to be on your machine even to scan directly. Uh, well, uh, l- let me let me let me rephrase that. The ScanSnap software has to be on your computer for for the, the the document scanner that we have at work that I actually have experience with. The ScanSnap software has to be on your computer if you expect to just put a document in the tray, hit the scan button, and everything else automatically take place on your computer. We could use image capture if you wanted to do it the slightly longer but not difficult route. But to take advantage of the button and the feature on the on the uh, computer, you have to have the ScanSnap software loaded. Plus, um, scanning actually takes a lot of bandwidth. Um, like, my scanner actually says that if it's not if it's not actually plugged into a, a real power source and stuff, that if it's just plugged into like the secondary USB thing, that it, you know, it it doesn't scan nearly as fast. So, um, I'm not sure what that has to do with bandwidth, but you know, I'm just gonna say that your scanner is basically sending the image to your computer in like a raw format and then your computer is actually the one with the software that's that's trimming it down and if you're going to be doing something like that wirelessly you're going to have to have a very fast wireless network because i mean usb operates at 480 megabits per second um and and the best n is only 104 yeah well i mean they're saying that um with uh, the the 2011 Macs that have just come out, that with macOS 10.7 Lion, that they will be able to go up to 450 megabits per second with a compatible router, yada yada yada. But that's assuming that there's nothing else on the on the network and that you can get you know absolutely no noise and and, and no lost packets and stuff along the way. So if you are going to be scanning, especially if you're going to be scanning a lot and multiple pages, like the scan snaps will have you do. Doing, then it's in your best interest just to plug it in directly, just do your scanning, and then just be done with it. Uh, Jason, so you do have experience using a scan snap at work? Yes. Oh, I you completely can... forgot about that until just now. Oh. <laughs> well, which which version is it? Um, 
The model number doesn't sound the same as yours. Uh, it is an integrated version, like you're talking about, that it just has a USB cable and nothing else, no external power, su- uh, power supply. Fujitsu comes to mind. Fujitsu, ScanSnap M, something to that extent. And like oh, I said, fl- the software is installed on the individual's computer that actually uses it. She places the document in, hits the button, picks the particular properties that she wants, black and white color or what have you. And if it's the case of somebody else, if, if it's the case that somebody else wanted that document, they give it to her, she scans it in, and it's in a PDF in their inbox within a minute. Wow. Now, it does it OCR as well? I don't know because I don't have okay. personal experience with the software, unfortunately, to yeah, that, to that extent. A, I think they have a low-end one. It's like a 300M or something. Could that be it? Sounds sounds about right. Sounds a little it's bit actually, more in the ballpark. Yeah, it's actually a very very small scanner. To, uh, yeah. Anyway, but yeah, I think that's I think that one does not have OCR, but I'm not 100. percent But the Fujitsu scan apps, they're kind of like the the baseline for measuring you know document scanners because they're just they're you know everyone that wants to go paperless is like okay what scanner do I get and then you'll have like 50 people saying oh get a Fujitsu scan snap because I love mine and I'm I'm now one of those people so. I'm assuming part of the, one of the things you said is that where ours, I think, only does uh, 8.5 by 11 at max, that yours actually is a little bit wider as well, perhaps? Mine can handle something like maybe a uh, half inch wider than that, um, but anything scanned through it can be arbitrarily long. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's going to be longer than 8.5 by 11, you do have to hold down the button until it flashes, but and that basically turns off the jam detection system where, you know, if... If it keeps going through and it detects, you know, something longer than eight and a half by eleven, this the software by default says, "Oh, I think we've got a paper jam." But if you tell it, "No, actually, this is something that's longer than eight and a half by eleven, then you're able to, you know, scan something really, you know, arbitrary length. So it's great for like receipts and stuff, you know, especially if it's something really long, like a grocery receipt. You can just pass it on right through. <laughs> like all those ones with the obnoxious surveys at the end and everything else. Exactly. All yeah. those coupons and surveys and, you know. <sighs> Give us yeah. your information. Give us your information. Win a thousand bucks if you're incredibly <laughs> lucky. Yeah. Well, I actually, um, I, I'm doing sort of like a shared custody of the scanner with my father because he has a lot of documents that he wants scanned as well. So we basically, you know, we each paid for half of it. And now that it's the summer, I've brought it to his house and... Uh, he's going to have custody of it over the summer so he can <laughs> scan his stuff. Wonderful personification of a uh, inanimate object. Well, it's kind of, you know, that's that's kind of what it is. Um, although I know I'm going to miss it because, you know, there are random things that I get that I can, I can just pass right through it. Put them and, in a box and have a scanning party when you go back. Well, that's kind of what I'm planning. Um <laughs> But yeah, I'm actually at my parents' house right now, and the reason why I scanned a whole bunch of stuff last night was because there was just a whole bunch of paper that I found in my room, just you know, old stuff, but not necessarily stuff that I wanted to throw away. Um, and I just scanned it all, and now I have it on my computer. It's you know, it's backed up to Dropbox. When I go back to um, my apartment, it's going to be backed up uh, to a time machine. So it's actually more durable than paper because you can make multiple copies of it. Mm-hmm. So we are going to, you know, before this episode actually is published, we are, all of us are going to put all our different recommendations in the, in the post asked by Steve Moser. So, um, and I, I encourage all of our listeners to do the same. If you've got something that you want to recommend for other people, if you've got something that really works for you, some 
Mac or iPhone or, or whatever accessory, feel free to post it in there. It's a perfectly fine question for um, Ask Different. So. Uh, we we actually didn't even cover the history of the question. Is that initially there were a couple votes to close uh, because one of the rules is that you can't come in to ask different and ask what's the best pair of headphones. Uh, we don't we don't do that on the site because best is relative and that's uh, with uh, different classes of headphones. I'm gonna I'll I'll recommend that you pony up for some sure headphones, but you're gonna be out four hundred dollars. And somebody else might say, well, Beats by Dr. Dre are a lot more have a have a lot better response. Whether that's true or not is all relative to the person. So the backstory to the question that we're featuring right now is that people were saying that this isn't allowed and they were voting to close it. But by uh, to the extent that it's actually talking about what accessory do you have and what use case does it fulfill, it comes more along the line of just a general recommendation list for this particular use case that the answerer wants to provide. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there are other questions that are very similar to this that are perfectly fine and that have, you know, are very popular on Ask Different. Like, there's, like, terminal tips and tricks and hidden features of macOS Ten and stuff like that. The Dropbox so, use that we did cover. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, as long as we don't have tons of these questions, um, you know, we, we do ho- sort of have to keep them to a limited quantity. But this is, you know, this is a good question, and it does ask something that's quite interesting. So... You know, if people do have their own recommendations, I suggest that they put them in there. And so this brings us around to our our last topic, our app of the week. And our app of the week this week is Handbrake. Do you wanna do you wanna say a little bit about this, Nathan? Sure. Handbrake is they describe it as a video transcoder, but that doesn't sound super exciting, so I'm gonna describe it differently. It is basically a way to get video from any source really and turn it into something useful so basically you can put a dvd into your mac and get a video off that and onto your computer in a useful format that you could you know use with quicktime and maybe make it uh, available for streaming or just play in quicktime on your machine or put it on your iphone or ipod or anything like that so and uh you can also you can start with videos from a source that's not a DVD, although the DVD uh, ripping is one of its major features. You can you can take any video file and turn it into something useful. And Handbrake is open source, free, and for just about every operating system. So I use it a lot, mainly for DVDs, but sometimes for other transcode stuff. And it's generally considered one of the best options for for anything in that area. I remember back before I found Handbrake that I stumbled across things like uh, the now defunct Visual Hub and a bunch of other applications. And the whole point that I was getting at was that I want video conversion to be simple. And that is the thing that makes Handbrake different. It is simple. There are tons of options for compression and multi-pass and target bitrate, this, that, and the other. And if you have specific technical requirements, put them in, save them. Uh, add your various files to the queue, let your computer go to town with them. But the one feature of Handbrake that I absolutely adore is that they ship presets for all Apple hardware. Universal for generally anything, and then they have presets for the first Apple TV, the second Apple TV, the non-Retina iPhone, and then the iPhone 4, and the iPad. Uh, the iPad is universal because the iPad 2 didn't have any difference in video uh, video display. Um, but it's 
it's I believe it's three clicks. Click browse to pick your source, click the preset, and click start. Five minutes later, however however long, relative to the size of your media, done. You have an MP4 sitting on your output destination. I have not seen much of any fault with it yet in terms of artifacting the quality, anything else. It takes it takes its time, and then it's done, and you can do whatever you were going to do with it. Yeah, the presets are important. Um, I do have, actually, a first-gen Apple TV. And some of the stuff that I had initially encoded when I was actually playing it back on the Apple TV, you know, it, it was playing back fine on my computer and stuff. But when I was playing it back on the TV, there were situations where, like, uh, suddenly, like, the, the screen would be, like, you know, it would be, like, really dark. And all of a sudden, boom, it, the, it would get, like, really bright and and stuff like that, where there was just this was really... Uh, the the levels were off for some reason on the output, and if you if you select um, that you want the the transcoded file to be compatible with like the first gen Apple TV, then it transcodes it in such a way that it doesn't it doesn't do that. Um, so it's important to, to to pay attention to that. One of the things that I always do when I transcode, uh, it used to be a preset on Handbrake. I don't think it is anymore, but I always uh, make sure that I do a two-pass. So it basically does a, and you can also do a turbo first pass, basically it does an initial pass of your source material, trying to identify areas where uh, it might need to use a little more bandwidth and other areas where you know it can get away with less bandwidth uh, so that you can more accurately reach your target file size, which I always, uh, I basically always try to, to um, transcode it to more or less the same uh, size file because usually I'm taking a, a format that's less compressed and then I'm putting it into H.264, which is more compressed. So as long as you keep the same file size, you don't lose a lot of quality. And of course, it takes the same space on your drive. That's always a plus. And yeah, I always make sure I do the turbo first pass and 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 I, I, ma- I make sure that I do two passes just to make sure that I, I'm able to better reach that target file size. They have a command line variant, which is something that I've been kind of messing around with. Although I think my I think my source DVD is perhaps a bad candidate because I think they have additional features that kind of munch uh, uh, munch ripping applications. But the the flexibility of the application and should I ever do this on a computer that isn't uh, that isn't my laptop, then the fact that it's cross platform is going to save me a lot of grief because H.264 is pretty highly compatible anywhere nowadays. Uh, but I, I can't I can't stress enough: easy, 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 easy. You click a couple of things, and if you don't care about further customization, you you plug it in and you're done. Uh, and I. As soon as I found that, I stopped searching, and I never have ever again because my all of my needs that I need to be able to get media in my in the format that I need for my iPhone and iPad are done. They're taken care of for me. Yeah, there was a while that I was really trying to build up like a media server with iTunes, and Handbrake was an essential component of that. Mm-hmm. Being able to take DVDs and and videos from other sources and make them iTunes compatible and make that available for sharing across the network and to my Apple TV and stuff like that. So, and actually, one of the other nice use cases about this is to get external media into a format that doesn't make iPhone cry. Uh, I, I'm sorry, uh, a, so- a format that doesn't make iMovie cry. Yeah, um, like a lot of high-end cameras and stuff like to shoot video and stuff in their own proprietary uh, formats that 
iMovie doesn't really like, and it Handbrake is good to just take that and just put it into something like H.264 or maybe something a little less compressed uh, to make it easier for iMovie to then import, uh, and then you you can work with the material like that. All right, this has been the Ask Different podcast. You can find us on iTunes by searching for Ask Different Podcast. If you have any feedback, questions you'd like to, for us to answer on air, or if you're going to WWDC and you'd like to be on the podcast and let us know all about it, just contact, contact us at podcast at askdifferent.net. Thanks for listening.